Amen. Well, grab your copy of the Bible, open up to Mark chapter 14. We're at the end of Mark chapter 14 this morning. Um, I was going to preach this last Sunday, but I wasn't here last Sunday. I'm sure many of you heard that we were on our, or we had plans to make it here last Sunday. We were at a wedding out in Kentucky, and the flight got canceled. We heard about it Saturday. I called Michael. I said, hey man, you're up. And he, uh, uh, you know, things got flipped around. The Hans began to prepare to lead worship. Brian was going to be the service leader. And I was just so sad to miss the baptisms and the church picnic. But uh, there's, there's, there's a joy in knowing that God cares for our church, that the Lord is our shepherd, and that he has raised up competent men to stand and to preach, to lead in various ways. And you were all blessed last week by those individuals. So I am publicly thankful for them and uh, thankful for the Lord for raising them up and that we can be away and the church just kind of goes on without a hitch. So praise the Lord for that. So you can open up to to Mark 14. Now there's something that we do all have in common this morning. It's not, even though we're in a church this morning, it's not that we're all Christians. I'm sure there are some here that are not Christians. You're not a Christian. I'm glad you're here. You're welcome to come back next week and every week and learn more about the Bible, what we Christians here do believe. That's not what we have in common. In fact, if you were to go around and look at everyone, you'd realize there's a lot of things we don't have in common with one another. There's a lot of different people in this room with different interests. Uh, they're all united over different things or gathered here this morning, maybe for different reasons even. even. But I wonder if if I were to be able to get each one of you in a more of a private setting and be able to talk to you, to, to kind of interview you in a way. And if you were to open up to me and if I could earn your trust and enable you to kind of share some of your own life with me, I, I wonder if we would all have this one thing in common. That one thing would be that we all have failures in our lives. Isn't that true that, that we are people who have failed, perhaps are failing various ways, or even are desperately afraid of failure, or different kinds of failures we've experienced? I wonder if I would go around the room and ask. I would probably hear about maybe business failures. Attempts at doing something in your career that didn't pan out that you hoped it was a failure. Or maybe there would be financial failures. Mistakes you made with your money in the past that you regret now. Failures. Some of the harder failures are relational failures. There are failures that we experience with the people we love most. And that's why there are people, maybe in this room, who have estranged family members they rarely speak to. People that you do love, but there's a distance, and perhaps there was a failure, maybe your own, maybe someone else's, that led to a separation. I know there are some here that are familiar with failed marriages. I know there are some parents here who even perhaps feel the sting of failure. It's hard not to as a parent from time to time. Feel like you're a failure. Relational failure can be tough, right? Challenging. 
It's all different kinds of failures. It's hard not to live every day of our lives with some sort of sense of inadequacy and failure. Like we haven't done it right. We haven't done enough. We have failed. Some of us perhaps are experiencing, have experienced a moral failure, spiritual failure, far more significant perhaps than you'd even admit, you've let not only people down, but you've let the Lord down. You've given in to temptation. You've been sludging through the muck of depression and you just feel like a constant failure. You feel weak, overcome by weakness. And your weakness makes you feel like a failure. Because you feel like a failure, you feel more weak. Because you feel more weak, failure just feels compounded. The downward spiral. There are some perhaps that would like to have a fresh season of life where they can just get started with new seasons of joy and obedience and confidence, but you're crippled by it. It nags at you. Every new step forward in obedience is like there's voices on your shoulders saying, no, but you're a failure. Don't you remember what you've done? Don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember what's happened? We all, I believe, have failures in our past or even in our present. Perhaps some of us even live each moment of each day Scared to death of a future failure may come down the road. What about you? Are you a failure? You feel failure? Are you in failure right now? Do you feel like you have things that you regret? Well, we're going to study failure this morning. We're going to study one of the most dramatic failures in the Bible. And one of the most dramatic scenes in the New Testament. We're going to study the failure of the Apostle Peter. A dramatic, infamous account of this great Apostle and how in the moment that he was uh, supposed to be there for his Savior, he failed. And he failed in a big way, in a massive way. In the end of Mark 14, and I have been praying that this story of failure would teach us how to avoid failure and would teach us how to redeem failure. Because I don't think the question is, are you a failure or have you failed or will you fail? You will, you will, you have. It's part of being fallen sinners. The question is, do you know how to redeem it by the grace of God? Go through it. We're going to study this as we look at Peter's life in this moment of great and dramatic failure. I want to read with you. I want you to follow along in your own copy of the Scriptures. In chapter 14 of Mark, we're going to be at the very end, verses 66 to 72. Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. This is, remember, the night of... Jesus' betrayal, it's in the middle of the night now. In the morning, on Friday, Jesus will be crucified. 
Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, he looked at him, or she looked at him, and said, You are also with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. What a dramatic scene, isn't it? I think the best way to go through this is to do it by asking some questions. And we're going to actually hover around the text for a little bit because to understand this fully, I think it makes sense to kind of see where, how we got here and some of the things along the way that, that we see in Peter's life that bring him to this point where he's now denying Jesus. And, and I, I almost wonder if this could be, we could talk through this almost like we're, we're in a private counseling session and, and we're talking through this and you're struggling with your own failure. Because the questions I want us to process as we think through this text are these. Do you know what spiritual strength really is? Do you understand the subtle destructiveness of sin? Do you understand the value of failure? Do you know how to redeem your failures? So the questions that I think if we ask them and look at the text and let the text answer, we will be helped to understand our own failures, why our own failures happen, and also, how do we live after massive failure? We need to learn this. So our first question, let's start here by talking about spiritual strength. Our first question is, do you know what spiritual strength really is? Would you call yourself a spiritually strong person? I'm spiritually strong. Would you say that you have a level of spiritual maturity, that you would say, I'm strong in the Lord? So what do you mean by that? What does it mean to be spiritually strong? Let's ask some questions and kind of just examine that that question. What does it even mean to be strong? I'm sure we all want to be spiritually strong, right? You want to be spiritually strong with the mission God's given us in the setting God has put you. You want to be a, a, a place of strength that you can be ministering to others. Well, what does that even mean? Let's ask a few questions. Does is spiritual strength mean knowledge? That you, you have a lot of knowledge? Think about Peter. Peter was able to follow Jesus around three years. He was one of the private inner three that got to hear all the inside information, all the private conversations. Peter got in on those. You remember back when Jesus was asking, who do people say that I am? And they'll say, well, maybe you're John the Baptist. Maybe you're Jeremiah the prophet. Maybe you're all these different people. Well, who do, you, who do you say that I am? Remember, who knew the right answer? Peter. 
Peter knew. He, he got it right. He goes, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him. Yes, you got it right. You have the right knowledge that I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Your Father revealed that to you. God has given you divine knowledge. You have the truth about who I am. Peter was correct in his understanding of who Jesus was in a way that maybe the rest of the disciples didn't quite get it yet. Peter was he had the truth. He understood Jesus. He, he had a right understanding of the person of Christ and who he was and what he had come to do. Does that mean he was spiritually strong? Well, no. I mean, he fails dramatically here. It was possible to have a great understanding of the, the, the Messiahship of Jesus and still not have the strength to withstand temptation. He had the right answers. He had a good Christology, you could say. But when it came down to it, he did not have the fortitude to say no to sin. You know, there's a lot of people that think that just getting knowledge makes you strong. I've got to grow in the Lord, so I'm going to go get an MDiv. I've got to read this book. I've got to gain more information. I have to learn more theology. Now, don't hear me wrong. Why are we here this morning? Because we're learning, right? Learning matters. Learn doctrine. Learn theology. Read good books. We give away good books all the time for a reason. Because learning's good. And this is how you come to love God. Is you have to know Him. And so you study and you read and you think and you ponder and you meditate. All that matters. But is knowledge alone, does that make you mature? Does that make you strong? There are some people that think that if they just learned Greek, they wouldn't be prone to temptation. That if they just had a seminary degree, they'd have a change of heart. But those things don't change people from the inside out. Knowledge is not something that makes you spiritually mature. Okay, well, it's not knowledge. Okay, maybe passion. Is, is, the, is passion spiritual strength? You know, people who are passionate, Peter was a passionate man, wasn't he? You read through the Gospels, you see Peter was a passionate man. He was the one, if you remember when Jesus was walking on water, who was the one that jumped out of the boat? He was passionate to get out there and try his own attempt at walking on water. And he was able to do it for a few moments. He was the one who said, if everybody else abandons you, I'm never going to abandon you, Jesus. I'm going to go with you to Jerusalem. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. He was passionate. Does that mean he was spiritually strong? Cult leaders are passionate. There are a lot of people who are passionate. They demonstrate all kinds of zeal. But zeal and passion do not necessarily equate to spiritual strength. Beware of thinking that passionate people are spiritually strong People follow passion. It's easy to get behind passion. But that doesn't always mean maturity. What about influence? Certainly influence has to do with spiritual strength. Peter was definitely an influential man. And you probably see this most accurately. Turn back in, your, in, your, uh, in the Gospel to chapter 14 where Jesus is saying, I'm going to fall away. Or sorry, you're all going to fall away. And Peter's going, I'm not going to fall away. And then at the end of this little dialogue in verse 31... Peter says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Peter says. 
he's emphatic, he's, he's arguing with Jesus. But then look at the next little thing that the narrator says that Mark includes here. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says, and they all said the same. You know, just previous in that same chapter, all the disciples, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, you remember what they were all saying? Is it, is it I? Like they were all humbly wondering, maybe it was in them. Maybe, maybe they were going to be the ones to do it. Now they're all following Peter's lead. Peter had influence. And once Peter starts saying that he's not going to deny him, all the rest of them start saying it. Man, this guy had influence. Does that mean he's spiritually strong? Well, again, we're just read of him denying Jesus, not once, not twice, three times. Just because a person is passionate and has certain knowledge and even influences people, that does not necessitate that, necessitate that he's therefore spiritually strong. Okay. Maybe spiritual strength is confidence. That's got to be it, right? Confidence. There was no one uh, in the disciples' group there that was more confident than Peter. Peter was the one to step up and speak when the moment needed it. You're the Christ. Or you remember in Mark chapter 9 in the Transfiguration, when Jesus reveals His glory and Peter, James, and John are there and James and John don't say a word, Peter steps up and starts talking about making tents for everyone. I mean, confident, ready to step up. I mean, he was so confident he was even willing to contradict Jesus at points and argue with him and say what he thought was right. He had a confidence about him. That must be spiritual strength, right? Confidence? Again, no. Not if this is true, that this same man who demonstrated this outward display of confidence at the moment of testing fell dramatically Confidence, not the same thing as spiritual strength. In fact, self-confidence is a ministry killer. It actually gets in the way of our usefulness to God. What is it then? What does it mean to be spiritually strong if it's not knowledge and passion and influence and confidence Isn't it easy to be deceived into thinking all those things mean someone is spiritually strong? What does true spiritual strength look like? You know what? Not what you'd expect. According to Jesus, do you know it starts with poverty of spirit? It's true spiritual strength is a recognition of internal bankruptcy. It is a refusal to put any confidence in the flesh. It is a rejection of any self-reliance. It is a recognition, a deep recognition of your own neediness. And then, an outward look to Christ, who is your strength. In other words, contrary to what we've been taught all our lives, True spiritual strength is not believing you have it within you to do all the things God's called you to do. It's not thinking more highly of yourself. It's not being more self-confident. It is despairing of yourself and recognizing you have nothing and no resources to do what God has required of you. And in your abject humility, looking to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3.5, Paul talks about true spiritual strength. But listen to how he talks about it. 
He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Any good thing you've ever seen me do, Paul says, it doesn't actually come from me. It's all God. It's all grace. He goes on to say, our sufficiency is from God. <laughs> uh, any adequacy I might have, any fruitfulness in my, our ministry we might have is all from God. None of it comes from ourselves. Much later in life, Peter, you know, the same Peter here who, who fails like this, he's writing a letter to Christians that are all suffering in First Peter, and he's encouraging them to serve. I want you to serve various gifts God's given you. But one of the things he says, I think this is very profound, and I think the reason he includes it is because he, he knows this by experience, because of this failure. He writes that these people ought to serve in the strength that God supplies. He doesn't just tell them, make sure you're serving. He says, I want you to serve, but don't serve in your own strength. Don't serve as if you have all the resources resources to serve. This is how you ought to serve. Serve recognizing you have no strength of your own to accomplish anything of any eternal value. And you serve in God's strength, knowing that only God can work through you to produce eternal fruit. Turn to Colossians. I want you to see this again in, in Paul's own thinking. In Colossians chapter 1, he's describing his ministry in verse 29. Or sorry, let's start at verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim. Colossians 1 verse 28. Him we proclaim. We're all about proclaiming Christ. That's what Paul's going to do. We proclaim Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What a great uh, theme verse for your life, right? I want to make sure everyone knows Christ. I want to proclaim Him. I want to teach people about Jesus in all wisdom. I want everyone I come into contact with to become mature in Christ. Watch this next verse, 29. For this I toil, struggling... This is like agonizing work to do this in the lives of the people he loves. For this I toil, struggling with all... What's that next word? Whose energy? I toil, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He didn't do any of the work by his own strength. He agonized, yes. He toiled, yes. It was labor for the Lord, yes. And it was all... God's energy in him and through him that made anything he did worthwhile. Spiritual strength is not thinking you have strength in yourself. It is despairing of any strength that you might think you have and recognizing you're bankrupt and recognizing you can do nothing. And in your poverty of spirit, you look to Christ. That is true biblical confidence. Okay, let's look at our second question. Do we understand the subtle destructiveness of pride? Go back to Mark chapter 14. I want to just talk through Peter's issues here because if we were to only look at the section I read, the actual moment of his failure, we might miss how he got there. And usually dramatic failures are not big one-time blow-ups. Often it's like a tire that has a small leak. It just over time, 
there's a leak that's going, and then boom, it blows out. You see, if you actually follow some of the things that's happened in chapter 14 and 15 with, with Peter, you recognize that there's something that's been going along, going on in his life and in his heart that has led to the blowout of this denial. Let me show you. Look at back at chapter 14, verse 27. 14, verse 27, Jesus is saying to them, you will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd. Jesus is pointing back to the prophecy in Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And one of the things we noticed when we preached on this a few weeks ago was this, that this statement and the following one in verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. This statement sounds very godly, doesn't it? But do you know what it is? It's pride, isn't it? it this is pride. As we trace Peter's downfall, I want to start by recognizing the presence of pride, but also by pointing out that the pride appeared godly. All the other disciples not only commended this idea, they embraced it themselves. They all applauded it. They wanted to be like Peter in this way. They all said the same, it says there at the end. This subtle destructiveness of pride sometimes appears to be something we all admire. There might be ways that we are serving out of the flesh or demonstrating commitment to Jesus that is nothing but pride. His downfall began with pride that sounded a lot like commitment. But then it led to something else. Remember that Jesus goes to the garden. He begins to pray. It says that he told them, Peter, James, and John, remember they were with him. Verse 38, chapter 14. He tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus warned them, there's a temptation coming tonight. And what do you need to do to face it? You need to be ready. That's watch. And you need to pray. But what happens when you're prideful? Do proud people pray? I mean, if you're self-sufficient, you don't really need any divine power from God. So you just have it all on yourself. So you don't pray. So what happens? First, he has this pride that sounds like commitment. And then his pride leads him to prayerlessness. He sleeps through the prayer meeting. He's supposed to be praying. He's supposed to be watching. He's supposed to be readying his heart for what's about to come. And he's asleep. And his prayerlessness is rooted in his pride. Because if he were not so prideful, he would have recognized his abject need in the moment. And it would have startled him awake. And he would have been in prayer as Jesus told him to pray. But he wasn't praying, was he? Because he was proud. Prayerlessness is one of those sins that we don't take all that seriously. We just say, well, I'm busy. Well, I got this thing going on. God forgives me. Try to do other good things. It's kind of interesting. If if one of you said, Eric... We need to talk. 
I just got something I can't hold in anymore. I got to confess some sin to you. And we go back to my office maybe after sermon and just say, I can't keep the sin. I've been committing a great sin. I'm almost ashamed to admit it. It's been killing me. I've been hiding it too long. And I need to tell you that I haven't been praying very much. Now, I would probably melt with relief because I would have expected something else. But it goes to show that many of us don't do that. We don't really confess the sin of prayerlessness very much. And yet prayerlessness is rooted in pride. And pride is the father of all sins. In fact, pride and prayerlessness are married. They go hand in hand. If you want to know if you're a prideful person, ask about your prayer life. If you want to know if you are why you're prayerless, why you don't pray very much, why your private devotions are just kind of dull, probably because you're proud. They go together. And they are the mother and father of all kinds of egregious sins. Peter's pride sounded like commitment and was commended, but it led him to prayerlessness. But that's not how it ends. Now we're in our text. Now we're in our text. Look at verse 66. Because his pride and his prayerlessness led him to be unprepared for the temptation that would befall him this night. Verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, for remember, Jesus was brought up to the high priest's house, a kind of palatial estate. Peter, actually John includes the detail that Peter and John are together. They're able to get into this courtyard because John actually knew someone from the high priest's household. They get in there and Peter is warming himself, it says. He goes in there. One of the servant girls of the high priests came and saw Peter warming himself. There's a little fire. It's probably between 1 and 3 a.m. The flickering of the firelight. This girl sees Peter standing there. Luke includes the detail that she was like staring at him. You ever done that in a store where you're like, I think I recognize you, but I'm not sure. And you're like looking at him weird. That's what this girl was doing. It couldn't quite tell, but she's staring at Peter going, huh. Then she says, at the end of verse 67, you were also with the Nazarene, Jesus. It's interesting. You look at what is said here. It's not a threat. It's pretty benign. You You were also with him. You were there, weren't you? He recognized him in some way. I think that at this moment, Peter was caught off guard. I think he was not prepared to answer to this girl. I think he was sitting there and suddenly uh, this temptation leaps out at him like a tiger. He's completely unaware. And I think his knee-jerk reaction is to lie. He was unprepared. He hadn't been praying. He wasn't ready. He walks in. He's operating in the flesh right here. And as soon as the girl asks him, or doesn't even ask him, it's not even a question, you're were, you were with Nazarene Jesus, he denies it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I don't even know what you're talking about. Nazarene Jesus, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I don't, I don't know. 
You see, right here, he's unprepared. Why? Because he was prayerless. Why was he prayerless? Because he was prideful. He had been operating thinking that he had enough strength and fortitude in and of himself to do what Jesus required of him. And so he didn't feel the need to pray. And then the moment of temptation came, and here he is now beginning to tell a lie about his association with Jesus. I don't even know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about, he says. And so you have his unpreparedness, but it doesn't stay there. Listen, sin never stays put. The little, the little nice pet sin that you have will not remain a little nice pet sin. It'll grow into a monster and devour you. And this is what's happening because now suddenly the little, you know, this little pride that he had, this little prayerlessness is now growing and now it's going to lead to compromise, private compromise. You see, the girl just can't let it go. She now begins to talk to the bystanders. You say, who are these bystanders at, you know, the middle of the night just standing around in the courtyard of the high priest? So these are probably the guards who arrested Jesus initially. Remember, there's around 500 of them. They took Jesus. They brought him. Peter and some of the disciples, John with them, kind of followed at a distance. Now they made it into the courtyard. Jesus is up being questioned by Caiaphas and the high priest and the Sanhedrin. The bystanders are these guards. And so the, the girl goes over to the bystanders. I think they're the, the guards. And it says he began to say to the bystanders, this man's one of them. So she's pointing it out. Look at verse 70. Peter responds again, he denied it. See, the, the first, first question or the first thing the girl said, I think caught him a little by surprise. This one, not so much. In fact, <laughs> I think we often think of these, these, these uh, temptations or these denials as happening like bam, 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 one right after another, three of them within the span of like five minutes. It's actually probably more like three hours that this whole thing took place. Uh, there's, a, diff, there's different keys in the text and in Luke in particular that give us time indicators that this is actually taking a span of time, that it didn't all happen immediately. In fact, in verse 70, it says after, he did, uh, again, he denied it, and then after a little while, uh, Luke makes it clear this is probably two to three hours going by. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you're a Galilean. Okay, so let's just review. His pride has made, made him prayerless. His prayerlessness has left him unprepared. He is now unprepared facing temptation, which leads to a private compromise by this girl asking him a question. And now it's about to lead him to a profound failure. This is a significant failure we're about to read. This isn't some small little thing that he does here. Oops, messed up. This isn't some little mistake. Oh, I said something I shouldn't have said. Look at, this is calculated. He is digging into his lie, his little pet lie that he began. The little pride that was in his heart is now growing to this monster he can't control. The snowball is rolling. He can't stop it now. And now he doubles down on his lie, triples down on his lie. It says in verse 71, he began to invoke a curse on himself. And to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. <laughs> this, is, this is huge. He, Peter would rather lie. He would rather curse himself. He would rather swear than be identified with Jesus. Peter had done a lot of bad things. Nothing like this. Not, nothing like this. Nothing so brazen. Nothing so offensive. Nothing so 
outrightly and obviously wicked. It had been in his heart all along. Now it's being exposed. It's coming out. Here he is, cursing. What it means there, the idea of a curse, the Greek word is anathema. It's like saying, it's almost a, a bad word. It's like saying, God, damn me if I am telling a lie. That's what he's doing. In fact, that word anathema is used in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe when God would curse a people or a city and who would tell Israel to go wipe them out entirely. They are anathema. That's what that would mean. And he's taking, I want you to curse me. And in fact, God curse me if I am telling a lie. That's what he's doing. He is calling God's judgment upon himself if he lies. He couldn't be more dug into his sin here. He is doing something horrifying, offensive to Jesus, to God. What started is just pride in his heart. Made him prayerless. Prayerlessness made him unprepared. His lack of preparation for the temptations that would come led to a private compromise in this little one-on-one dialogue with this girl. Then it led to a profound and public failure as he announces to all there a curse upon himself and a lie to them all that he does not know Jesus. Do you see this? Now this all happened in the span of a few hours. But this pattern is happening in so many people's lives over the span of years. You're proud. The prayer life kind of stinks. There's private compromises that begin to slip up. They begin to slip up. In their pride, they don't want to talk to anyone. They don't get any help. It goes on. It goes on. They don't remedy it. They don't confess. They don't reach out for help. And then what? Profound, moral, spiritual failure. You've seen it, haven't you? You've heard the stories. It is never... A one-time event. Oops, big moral failure. It is always like this, isn't it? It's always the small things, the small things, the little things not being dealt with. Oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, I'll take care of it. Oh, I'll deal with that later. Oh, it'll, it'll take care of itself. Until it ruins a life, ruins a marriage, ruins a ministry, ruins a family, tears people apart. What starts small snowballs. You see that in the span of three hours, it happens in people's lives all the time. You can ask, well, how come we don't see moral failures coming from a mile away? Because they're always subtle. They always start in ways we don't recognize. This is what's happening. Do you see the subtle destruction of pride in Peter's Life in this one chapter, you see it played out at rapid speed. And if that's all we're here, if that's all we were left with, is that message we maybe would feel a little hopeless. 
I want to ask you the third question. Do you understand the value of failure? Look at verse 72. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Luke includes a fascinating detail that right at around the same time as this second rooster crow, what's happening is Jesus, again, he's getting questioned by the high priest, but he also, remember, he gets dragged like several different places throughout the night, people giving him all these sham trials. And now he's probably being dragged somewhere else, perhaps to Pilate or to Herod at this point. And so Jesus is, is moving through. He's leaving the high priest's headquarters. Peter's down in the courtyard. And so Peter is just, has just finished cursing and swearing and yelling to anyone who would hear, I don't know him. As Jesus is getting transferred to a new location. Because Luke includes the detail that right after that second rooster crow happens, it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then it says, and Peter remembered. There was a crow, and then there was a look. And suddenly Peter is confronted with everything that Jesus had told him. The look of his Savior. And just, just to get this in your, your brain, Jesus had been up all night. He's, he's probably soaked in bloody sweat from the night before, remember? He had been up all night, agonizing in prayer. He, he, he looks like a wreck. They started beating him up the night before as well, remember, in the previous section. They start whacking him across the head. He probably has fat lips and black eyes, ripped clothing. They're dragging him through. He, he probably looks like he's a wreck. And in that moment, he looks his... Across the courtyard, he looks down. He sees Peter. His eyes lock with Peter's. And Peter, after having just done what he did, hears the rooster crow, looks into the eyes of his Savior. Look at verse 72. And he broke down. The Greek here is a word, epibolo. It's, It's an emphatic word. It's an interesting word. It can, ref- it can refer to putting something on. More likely, it refers to tearing something off, throwing something down. It is a kind of a violent word. It's describing what Peter experienced the moment he saw the look in his Savior's eyes. And he remembered what his Savior said. And remembered the gravity of his own sin. And it says he broke. He broke down He probably cast himself to the ground. He probably covered his face. And it says that he wept. He just began to sob. He was weeping. Complete disintegration of the man. Like a tidal wave, guilt just begins flooding over him. What have I done? What have I done? I was supposed to be Jesus is man. I was supposed to be with him. I I was called to do this. I have failed. You been there? I'm a failure. I have failed. You ever said this in the quietness of your own room? What have I done? 
Why did I do that? Why did I give in? Why did I not just say no? Why did I not just tell the truth? What have I done? I thought, am I redeemable? Am I lovable? Am I restorable? I've ruined it. I've ruined my witness. I've ruined my marriage. I've ruined my relationships. I've broken it all down. I am lost. Church, in a very real sense, this is where Peter's ministry begins. He had to do this. This had to happen. Otherwise, he would still be proud, he would still be prayerless, he'd be unprepared, and the small compromises would lead to a big moral failure later on. God had to break him down. Do you yet see the values in your failure that expose your pride, that brings it to the surface, that helps you to see that you don't have what it takes? You can't possibly have what it takes. That you are a sinner and you are broken and you are weak and you are needy. And that your only hope is that there is a God in heaven who is gracious and merciful and kind and will give strength to the weary. I wonder if you feel weak. Any of us think it's bad to feel weak. Do you? Or have you considered that maybe feeling weak is seeing yourself a little more clearly? Sometimes we get so discouraged for being weak, are actually times we ought to realize that God is helping us to see us for who we actually are. And to feel weak is to see yourself with all the fog blown away, to see yourself truly as a needy sinner who is actually weak, so that you'll finally stop trusting yourself and look outside of yourself for strength. When God makes us feel weak, rejoice. He's doing a good work in you. He is drawing you to yourself. See, Peter's failure brought his weakness to the surface. It forced him to deal with his pride. It forced him to see himself for who he really is so that later on he could actually be useful. He could actually be strong in God's strength. Because until you're broken down, until you despair of your own strength, you will never look to Christ. You will always still be trying to do things in your own power. I've heard it many times. And after a big failure, or after someone's caught in sin, they will say something like, I am so relieved someone found out. Because now I can be free. Now I can deal with it. When the sin is hidden, or excused, or ignored, there's no escaping it if that's how you're going to deal with it. But when it's brought out, when it's brought to the surface, when it's exposed, well, that's a sin we can now move on from and gain victory over because now we can deal with it. And if you are in the pit of failure right now, you feel like Peter. Lord, I have failed you. I have failed you in private. 
I have failed you in public. I have failed you in my pride. I have failed you in my prayerlessness. I have not been a good disciple. I have failed you. If you're in the pit of failure, there is good news. Our God is the God of all mercy. He is the God of all comfort. He is the God of all grace. He loves sinners. He welcomes repentant sinners into His presence and forgives them. He is kind to the downcast, to the contrite, to the lowly. But those who are proud, the Bible says God is against the proud. But to the humble, He gives grace upon grace. And our greatest failure, you may have failed in various ways, but our greatest failure and humanity's greatest failure is that we have lived in rebellion against God. We lived as rebels. We did not give Him the glory He deserves. We still to this day do not give Him the glory He deserves. Do we? But God in His infinite mercy has given us His own Son, Jesus. And why is Jesus here? What is He doing? He's going to the cross. He is going to the cross to make payment for the sins of all who would ever turn from their sins in humility and trust in Him. And all who trust in Him are forgiven. And Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive right now and He is the Savior for all who would come and trust in Him. And anyone, any failure, not only will you be forgiven, but you will be then strengthened. For a life of obedience. There's value in failure. There's value in failure for what it's doing to draw you to God. You learn to despair of yourself and look to Christ. Number four, how do you know or do you know how to redeem your failures? We'll close with this. I want to draw a contrast real quick. In chapter 14, you remember... There's also been a lot about Judas. And at the end of chapter 14, Judas and Peter are almost in the same predicament. Both had followed Jesus around. Both failed him in his time of need. And actually, both exhibit a kind of regret and change of mind. In Matthew 27, Judas throws the money back and changes his mind. He doesn't want anything to do with it. But then Peter goes on, he becomes a powerful preacher of the gospel. He becomes a stalwart in the early church. He becomes a sage that writes letters to shepherd the church. He becomes this incredible Christian example for all Christians of all time. Judas dies in misery. He throws away the coins that he got from betraying Jesus and he goes and kills himself in abject despair. What's the difference? How did they respond to failure? How do you redeem your failures? The answer is simple. And it's true. If you've not trusted Christ at all, or you've been trusting Him for decades, the answer is the same. How do you redeem your failures? Here's the answer. Run to Jesus Christ. Take that failure. Look it in the face. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't ignore it. Understand all that it is and go straight to Jesus Christ. Bring it to Him. 
recognize that He and He alone can restore you from your failure. I believe that there are some of you here this morning who are not taking steps forward in faithful obedience because you got skeletons in your closet. And because you got regrets in your past. And you don't know how to deal with that. And you think, I'm not qualified to do anything for Jesus. I don't know. That's got to be left over to the other spiritually strong people. I can't do it. I have too much baggage. Well, you need to understand that you take your baggage to Jesus. And when you go to Jesus, all of this stuff begins to take, be taken care of. Because only He can take care of it. You can't take care of it yourself. There's four reasons why you got to come to Jesus right now if you have failure and regret in your life or in your past. First, go to Jesus because He already knows. He already knew. When He set His love on you, He already knew that you would fail Him. Remember what happened to Peter. Jesus had been predicting this failure. He had been predicting that it would happen. You have never sinned in a way that has surprised Jesus. Secondly, go to Jesus because... He's on your side. In Luke, Jesus says, hey, you're going to fail me. And Satan has demanded that he have you. He's going to sift you like wheat. But then Jesus says, but I've prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. You understand, church, that Jesus is praying for you right now? That your faith will not fail? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he is always interceding for us. He's on your side. He's praying for you right now. Why would you not come to Him? Why would you not bring Him everything? Why would you not entrust Him with all your baggage and all your failures and all your guilt and all your shame? He already knew where you would fail. He's on your side praying for you now. Go to Him. Run to Him. You're welcome, church, to go to Him. Don't you love that song that we sing from time to time? He will hold me fast. Oh, I love that song. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Church, He will hold you fast. Keep running back to Jesus. Every hour, every day, you need Him. Every hour and every day. So go to Him. And He's on your side. He already knew how you would sin. He's on your side praying for you. Here's a third reason. Go to Jesus because He alone can restore you completely. At the end of John, Peter meets with Jesus. And there's this dialogue. And Jesus says, do you love me? He says, I do. Do you love me? Yeah, I do. Do you love me? Three times, do you love me? And each time after he says that, Jesus tells him, well, if you love me, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, I'm calling you to get back into ministry. Start serving. He's restoring them to ministry. I wonder if some of you have been moping around in your sin. (laughs) And Jesus, if He were here, might walk up to you and grab you by the chin and say, hey, look at me. You're forgiven. Stop acting like I don't love you. Or I don't forgive you. I love you. I've forgiven you. You're mine. You're restored. Get back in the game. Serve. And go to Jesus lastly because He alone gives strength for future victory. All grace can abound in you through Jesus Christ. He's your only hope. He's your only source of strength. 
We've all experienced it. We'll all experience in the future. We need to know how to fail. The only way to fail is to fall right into Jesus' arms. Peter failed dramatically. He was fully restored as he turned to Jesus. Beware of the way sin in its subtleties, in its pride, is making its way in your life. As soon as you see it, run to Christ. Let's pray. We need you desperately, Lord, this morning and every hour and every day. Help us. We pray. Say no to temptation, to rely on your strength. Live lives of humble and faithful obedience. Grant, Lord, that we would stop looking to ourselves and look to you. That you would strengthen us the task at hand. That we might serve you and work for you and labor and agonize and toil and strive with all the energy that you provide so that you receive the glory. Jesus,